heavily, I'm a clown. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin birdwatching. Had Corey Clipston on today, founder of Swan Bitcoin. Hadn't had Corey on since the last time he came on to talk about his previous project, Give Bitcoin, so it's good to catch up with Corey. We talked a little bit about Swan, but we also got into a bunch of other stuff about like economics and geopolitics and just Bitcoin in general, so I think you're going to enjoy it. Corey's a really smart guy and has some really interesting stories from his life, so I'll get right to it and come back and talk with you guys at the end. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF. Dash 1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Corey, how's it going, man? Hey, Colin. Good to see you. Likewise. Well, for the audience, it's you know just good to hear hear your voice. That's true. That's and true. Yes, we are just just a podcast. Although I I have the benefit of seeing you and Ben here. Yeah, that's um attorney-client privilege. The, the video <laughs> feed. You guys don't get it. But you, you've been busy, man. Every, the last time we talked to you were uh, all about give Bitcoin and now big things have happened. Yeah, I guess that was probably around the launch of give Bitcoin, probably last November or December or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a really busy six or seven months uh, getting Swan off the ground, bringing on a much bigger team and, and uh, kind of getting out there. How is Swan, how, how'd the launch go? Has it been difficult i mean was there anything you guys weren't expecting uh we we i mean honestly like it's it's absolutely destroyed our expectations for the numbers as far as how fast we thought it would ramp so that's been great um we just passed three months we're sitting here early july we launched the public on on march 30th so i think you know the way that Jan and all the Silicon Valley guys always talk about it is like, do you have product market fit and how fast you get to a thousand users and things like that. And all of that has gone uh, really swimmingly well and made it really easy to raise some more money and kind of just like be, be well equipped for building it for the foreseeable future, like well into the bull run that we kind of all expect to kick off mm-hmm. sometime later this year, or early next year or something like that. So I think we've kind of uh, like, it's a thing as Peter Thiel would say, we went from zero to one and now it's just like, you know, how, how good can we make this thing? Yeah. So you said it destroyed your expectations of what, uh, why, why do you think that is like, do you, do you think you guys just found the niche? Like, did you, are you meeting demand that that was there that had no home or? Uh, I think we're meeting demand that was there that had, uh, not a good home, you know, like there were people just getting overcharged by Coinbase and Gemini um, and we undercut those guys by 60 to 80% on, uh, on fees. So it's pretty easy to win a lot of people coming over. Wow. But uh, I think we've also done a really good job of uh, being the top recommendation uh, for Bitcoiners that get asked about where should somebody new buy Bitcoin. Um, just based on the support tickets we get and like the names and the regions and just watching, you know, where people find us like, 
I think well over half the people that are Swan customers are new to Bitcoin. So yeah, that's been really uh, great to see because, you know, whether it's Swan or another site that's, you know, Bitcoin only or Bitcoin first and really doing a good job with educating people about Bitcoin, that's where we want new people to the space to discover Bitcoin. The last thing you want is for them to discover it on a crypto exchange that's disingenuously trying to educate them about quote unquote cryptos and trying to fool them into trading altcoins. Um, you know, so our, our goal, our North Star is always to be the number one recommendation of Bitcoiners to people who ask them where to buy. That's the exciting thing is like that's gotten so much better just in the last year than it was in like 2017. I mean, I remember waiting probably six or eight months till I finally got approved on Coinbase. And then you're just opened up to this casino of nonsense. Um, and, and you guys have a hell of a referral program going too. It's like 25 bips for, for three years or something like that, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, anybody, anybody can sign up and we've got hundreds of people making referrals. Um, you can sign up at swanbitcoin.com slash enlist uh, for the Zoomers who like to feel part of something, we call it Swan Force and we have Swan Force gear and I usually have a Swan Force mug and shirts and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's 25 bips, so a quarter of a point for the first three years for anyone who signs up to be a member um, through your link uh, with a minimum five bucks. So you always get the five bucks regardless of how long they stick around and how much they end up spending, which is nice. It's our guys, job to help them spend more over time and buy more right. Bitcoin. And you guys have <laughs> got to be, well, two things there. One, I, I feel like you guys have got to be on slim margin there. Like if you're, if you're giving 25 bips away to every single referee sign up agreement, and then on top of that, you're undercutting the Coinbase fees. I, I don't know. To me, it seems like you, you got to be running pretty slim margin. Um, and then I, I forget what the second thing was. So, so go ahead. <laughs> No, it's fine. I mean, we're, we are very comfortable with these, as you say, slim margins that we have because we do uh, a really good job of running everything pretty automated and we can keep a very small team. And, you know, we think there's, uh, you know, so much room to capture market share and to bring new people into Bitcoin that our, our numbers for like where we hit break even, are, it's like super achievable. Um, you know, I think we may even be cash flow break even later this year. Well, wow, awesome. That's how you do it too, right? I mean, you take down these ridiculous organizations with no focus um, that are just sloshing money all over the place and you just fit right in and, you know, keep yourself lean. Yeah, it's definitely the place. It's definitely the place to, to start. And then, you know, we just, if we do expand, it'll be expanding into other channels and other ways to sell Bitcoin. You know, it'll be uh, channel partners that want to buy Bitcoin button you know, can say like, hey, don't you think it's cool that Square has a buy Bitcoin button inside of their cash app? Wouldn't you like that? You know, and by the way, you can have all these educational resources either on our website or on like a white labeled website for yourself. And, and, you know, you can undercut them on price and advertise that. And then we can have, you know, hundreds of partners, you know, banks and millennial savings apps and whatever selling Bitcoin powered by Swan all over the country. That's kind of our plan. And that was something we were talking about the other day was um, I was thinking about how many exchanges I've been through in the last three or four years. And I don't even want to mention them all or I don't even really want to think about it because I hate the KYC process. But uh, the, so many of them were so bad that I've had, 
I have not had a whole lot of stickiness with, with the exchanges that I've been through in the last few years. Um, hoping, you know, we're, we're starting to see some, some serious players emerge, you know, between you guys and river um, they're doing big things and, and seeing this more, what would you, what would you even call it? Like a more measured approach? I don't even know. Um, it, it gives me hope that, that I won't have to keep hopping around, you know, going on into the future. I, I think Cash App was the first ones to really kind of do it better than everyone else. But even with Cash App, there, there's a lot to be desired. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I think, you know, obviously I'm a, a huge Jack Dorsey fan and, you know, his quotes have been <laughs> sent out by me for years. Whenever he talks about Bitcoin, I use a I don't even care that they're technically a competitor. I think there's still a Jack Dorsey quote on our homepage, or at least there was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and he's like in our investor deck as, you know, one of the people vouching for Bitcoin and stuff like that. So, you know, and I'm also like a huge Steve Lee fan and talked to him a lot when he was at Optech before he went and took over Square Crypto and they're giving out grants. Like, so more power to him. It's awesome. You know, that said, they're a public company and, you know, they don't need to lower prices for their users because they have a captive audience. And so somebody new to Bitcoin that doesn't want to be hit with, you know, a lot of notifications about McDonald's coupons and, you know, buy this stonk and, you know, all these other, you know, payments and all these confusing things. Like if you want a Bitcoin only experience and we're able to offer significantly lower prices we're anywhere from 23 to 57% uh, cheaper than, than Cash App for Bitcoin purchases, um, you know, I think we're a better recommendation. It's the beauty of a free market capitalist competition, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I love those guys and I hope they keep on spreading the word. And, you know, I see what happens on, you know, cash tag Fridays and Bill Pulte giving away cash app, you know, Bitcoin yesterday, like it's all just so good. And there's, you know, I, I, I come at this two ways. One is a simple, like how many people around the world sell gold, how many major online businesses and local resellers and, you know, black market dudes in India and Turkey and whatever, and how many different formats is that sold and how many different ways is it bundled, you know, so you can bundle Bitcoin with, you know, recurring purchases or with education or with a node or with the multi-sig setup or like all these different ways to differentiate the sale of a commodity product and add value through service, white glove service, onboarding phone call, uh, membership with this, that, or the other free ebook, free audio book. You know, there's so many different ways that you can dress up, uh, the sale of a commodity to find margin for yourself and differentiate yourself versus competitors. Gold jewelry is a great example in the gold world, right? Um, or gold coins that look cool and you kind of like have some collector value for yourself on top of whatever the weight of the gold is. Um, so I think it's silly to think that there's only one way to sell Bitcoin and that, you know, I, I just, it brings me back to, uh, you know, conversations with VCs in like uh, November, December. These are like people that have been in the space, investing in the space, whatever. Uh, and, you know, four or five uh, would say just absolutely stupid things like Coinbase is a monopoly. And we see that just like consolidating for one person. It's like, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah. Remember that one gold seller? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, of course, there's only one person that sells gold, right? Got it. Okay, idiot. Um, and then the other way I like to think about it is like, you know, people who are into Bitcoin, like it makes, just like there's a gold district where all the different gold merchants have their stores in almost every major metropolitan city. There's like a place where you go and you buy gold and they, you know, these dudes have tea with each other, you know, and they probably go to each other's weddings because they're in the same industry. Or, you know, when I used to run around New York as a 20 as a something, you know, 
the bankers and private equity guys, like they were competing with each other by day, but at night out and about, they have a lot more in common with each other, popping bottles in the club than, you know, than somebody else. So that's who they kind of hang with. So like I could totally see, you know, like, sure, we're competing with Square, River, whatever, but we have so much more in common with these people that are doing good things for Bitcoin and that are trying really hard and that, you know, came to the same decision to like what to do with their life at this moment in time. Like I listen to, you know, Miles talk and chat with them every once in a while on Telegram uh, over at, at Cash App or, you know, engage with uh, Alex up at River on Twitter every once in a while or send them a note, like congrats, whatever. Like these are good dudes and they're competing and, and their products are differentiated. They're not selling the exact same thing. Um, and, you know, I think there's plenty of room for everybody to, to basically sell either the number one or number two best consumer product. Well, it's probably the best consumer product in the internet age. Uh, and then search is probably, you know, still so far in the number one slot, but that's mostly an internet product as far as, or uh, enterprise product as far as how they monetize. But I think search and Bitcoin are the two best products of the internet age. I think it's funny is uh, something Colin's mentioned a few times when we've talked to uh, for River, for example, but it really relevant to what you were saying there is that like the incentives of Bitcoin are aligned that, you know, if Swan and, and River both win, then we all win. Right. And, and society wins. And I, I think that's kind of a beautiful thing. Dude, I know, like, obviously, like, I th- think we were just, they were just like, I mean, I got a bunch of investor calls. I, I can't like talk about fundraising it's against sec rules whatever but a lot of people hit us up when river announced you know raising 5.7 million from you know polychain and the digital garage and some of these crypto funds and it's like okay so they they were able to attract even a bunch of these crypto funds and like olaf carlson v and these guys to like bet on a bitcoin company like that's a really good signal for that's a great. company like us yeah yeah, I think that the jewelry store example that you use is really good because there's so much markup, so much premium on jewelry. And like most of those jewelry salesmen that you see, like the jewelers row that you see like in Chicago or something like that, they don't, they're not even gold wholesalers. So yeah, you can buy gold from them if you're willing to pay a premium and buy it in the form of jewelry. Um, and, and you can say whatever you want about that business model, but they've made it work for a pretty damn long time now. Um, you know, whether or not it makes sense is a different thing. People do what people do. Humans act differently. Um, and apparently, and there's enough people willing to pay that premium for gold in the shape of a ring. Um, it, it doesn't seem like too far much of a stretch to extrapolate that same line of thinking out with Bitcoin. There's probably a whole lot of services that, uh, we haven't even thought about yet on, on to how you could uh, capture some of that premium um, outside of just buying and selling the, the base asset. You know, I agree, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're really, we're probably positioned as like, you know, keeping costs as low as possible. Um, but then, you know, obviously providing the, the education and just like ease of use and just things like that. Um, you know, cause like you can't, you can't always just compete on price because somebody else could come in and they could pay you to buy Bitcoin if they wanted to use it as a loss leader, just to get, you know, clients for some other business. 
So you could see, you know, like if JP Morgan decided to buy, you know, like to sell Bitcoin, you know, they could come in and they could say, we're going to sell Bitcoin, but we're going to pay you a quarter point, <laughs> you know, if they wanted to, there's no, there's no rule against subsidizing people's purchases. I think crypto.com right now is letting people buy for credit card on free for like free for a month. Oh, wow. So they're, they're eating your, you know, three and a half to 5%, which is what a credit card company would charge you for, uh, you know, buying a cryptocurrency and they're just eating that as a marketing cost because they know they can show you so many shit coins and all kinds of garbage and be in your notifications on your phone constantly like using psychological tricks to try to fool you into doing horrible things for your finances and that's what that's uh what i've really noticed about you guys i'm sure everyone's noticed it at least everyone on bitcoin twitter is like immediately right out of the gate you guys were there um because you knew your audience well you knew you knew who your target audience was which was seemingly you know the dcaers the the bitcoiners who were memeing about stacking stats and you guys were right there right i mean playing into that meme um pretty well you know obviously it's worked for you with, with the growth that you've seen out of the gate and and i admire um the swan signal thing just because i i think um, sometimes it feels to me like maybe the whole Bitcoin podcast thing is oversaturated, but I, I don't think it is. I, I really don't because this space in general still has so much room to grow. And when I say space, I mean the Bitcoin space mm-hmm. still has so much room to grow. And there's people that like to talk about the finance side. There's people that like to talk about the tech side. There's people that like to talk about the geopolitical side. There's so much room you know, for, for that type of discussion to see it attached to a service, right. To see you guys kind of representing um, what you believe and why behind your product. That's always good in my mind. I appreciate that. Yeah. We definitely think that, uh, you know, any show that's in here right now, mixing it up and, you know, maybe you, you may have like a few thousand listens or downloads right now or views per episode or whatever it is. Like that's all going to go 10 to hundred X over the next couple of years. And a lot of those people are going to stick around through the next cycle. And so like, if you're committed to it and you know, you want to have, you know, either a media brand or just, you know, use owned media as a marketing strategy for your company. I think now is the time to invest in it, even if it doesn't seem like it necessary. like obviously our staff time and what we put into the show doesn't ROI as far as delivering, you know, X number of users, <laughs> per episode or something like that and it doesn't do that um but i think it uh it shows who we are it makes people want to come and work with us it makes people more comfortable recommending us because they know exactly who we are and what we care about so you know it's kind of the foundation it's the scaffolding that kind of everything else is built on top of is is letting people see exactly how we think about things and who we care about who we want to book on our show that kind of thing um so yeah, I mean, youtube.com slash swan signal. This is Brady Swenson, Citizen Bitcoin, hosts a show uh, every Wednesday. We always have two guests um, uh, every week and, and basically just kind of like facilitate a discussion and, and kind of have a, a, rowdy, a rowdy chat. Um, and then we just started a second show. So our third episode of a, of a new podcast uh, just went up and it's, it's on YouTube as well at youtube.com slash swan signal or uglyducklingpodcast.com. Um, and this is a really, this is an interesting one. I don't know if it's going to work, but we're going to do it for the rest of the year. So I'm going to get like at least 50 episodes out and see what happens, but it's called ugly duckling in the bright orange future. And, uh, it's basically, it's about gen X music 
and Bitcoin. And we're trying to draw people in. Uh, we're going to have a lot of interviews with musicians talking about things or just like, you know, people with pretty big audiences coming on and talking about music and then segueing into a little chat about Bitcoin toward the end and seeing if people stick around and if it works. Um, you know, and this, this comes from uh, long, long ago when I was in, uh, in business school. I did my summer internship at Vitamin Water uh, in New York in like 2003. And uh, Vitamin Water was, you know, kind of like, it's a product, sure. It's like a sugary drink, whatever. Uh, <laughs> you can't really drink your vitamins, but it tastes good and it kind of makes you feel good. Anyway, this guy that was running marketing there, Rohan Oza, uh, he did the same playbook like five times in a row and it was basically marketing through passion zones. So he was first in charge of Powerade and decided to associate Powerade with like sports and TV or something like that and just kind of like marketed around that. At Vitamin Water, they chose uh, film and TV, music, fashion and sports so they basically just like sent free products to to people in those verticals and tried to seed vitamin water and associate it with these things that people cared about i just think that uh you know if i'm looking at things that everybody cares about that's as much a universal language as money is um because money you know and price is really like the one the one thing that everybody speaks and as bitcoin rolls out you know it should be this this bright orange future which is in the title of the podcast um where we can all communicate through a price that we all understand the value of what it is we're we're paying for things with you know music is something that is similarly universal that everybody likes music everybody likes to hear what other people think about music if i ask ben right now like you know, Ben, think about an artist or a song or an album that has stood the test of time for you in your life and that has had staying power and that has really like meant something to you. Like, what is it? Pink Floyd money. <laughs> there you go. Right. And now we could, we could riff on that. And that's an interesting personal story that tells me, Hey, this is, you know, probably somebody that had kind of a low time preference approach to making music that made music that could last for a long, long time. If it means that much to you, it probably means a lot to some segment of the other people listening. It means something to me. I used to go to Pink Floyd like laser shows in Seattle all through high school. You know, I know it means something to my brother because he was born in 1970 and it's like he grew up with that shit. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of people that's going to mean something too. Um, and I think that's kind of universal. Um, you can always like slide some Bitcoin in there too. <laughs> so, so we'll see. It may or may not work, but uh, it's, you know, I think it's going to be interesting for all of us to figure out how to cast a little bit of a wider net and pull people in with kind of like Bitcoin and strategies over time. It's an interesting idea. Something that I haven't seen much of um, other than in the altcoin space so far. I'm not privy to that. What do they do? Well, like Floyd, May Floyd Mayweather and shitcoin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like Litecoin on the UFC octagon or like mm. Bitcoin cash billboards and propaganda videos, those types of things. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, there's no centralized entity for Bitcoin and there's no Bitcoin company that can afford sponsorships. Right. Well, there are. They just prioritize other things, right? I mean, Coinbase could easily be, uh, you know, I actually I remember the uh, the drop gold ad 
that one was was interesting. Yeah, I mean they've done a nice job, but they actually make money on Bitcoin because they, you know, they're doing their two percent per year sure. just to hold Bitcoin for people in GPTC Trust. Like, uh, it makes sense for them to do some advertising, and that certainly got people's attention. You know, I, I thought it was great. Yeah, G- GBTC never ceases to amaze me um, that they're one that they're still pretty much the only ones doing it. Um, Cause I remember, I remember when I was trying to get into Bitcoin in like 2017 and I couldn't buy, uh, I, I couldn't buy actual Bitcoin cause I just couldn't get it anywhere. So I was trying to find it in other ways. And at the time I was really into trading OTC uh, like pink sheets and I came across GBTC and I think it was a gray market at the time. I don't, I think that they're, they worked their way up the OTC. Now I think they're like OTC QB or something like that. And they're trying to get listed on the NASDAQ. I'm not sure if they have yet or not. I don't, I don't think they have, but man, the premium, I think the premium in 2017 was like, it was like almost, I don't remember the exact number, but I don't want to just make it up, but it was like hundreds of millions, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, their collateral. it's typically something like, you know, 10 to 20%. And even this year, earlier this year, at one point, I think it spiked up over 30. It's insane. Before March. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely some kind of trade there that people with more time than I have, uh, uh, you know, can just pile in twice a year and buy it at, at no premium and then just sell it later for the premium. All right. Like you have to hold it for six months or hold it for a year or something like that. But you could kind of just like start a train where you're always buying GBTC when it's uh, when it's on sale for NAV. I know but for yeah, a they, lot of, go ahead. I know for a lot of people that's the primary way that they can get exposure to Bitcoin in, in a retirement account. Not all retirement accounts uh, allow access to OTC. It depends on who the brokerage is that manages the fund. But some IRAs will allow you to purchase pink sheets and you can actually get exposure to Bitcoin through to through traditional equity um, with GBTC, which is, which is a really interesting niche. And if the regulators stop dragging their feet, you know, I would love to see that change. Yeah. Well, until we launch a Swan IRA, which we're planning on, uh, I do hold GBTC in an IRA. Nice. You know, it's just like the easiest thing to do, um, you know, but there there are more and more people figuring out like Jeff Andrew with uh, KeyKeep IRA and there's a bunch of other people doing that, like I trust out here in LA and stay the heck away from Bitcoin IRA because they just gouge you. But uh, a lot of people have dropped that, you know, 11 to 15% that Bitcoin IRA charges down to like one or 2% where it should be. And, and we'll let you do that. Jeff's thing is super interesting to me. I've, I've had him on the show before. It was a long time ago, but his model, his model is probably the most interesting that I've seen where you're actually able to self custody your keys. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not a, um, it's not an unknown model. There's people all over the country doing it already. There's cause anybody that has a checkbook LLC, you can invest in anything that you want to. Um, so you can buy real estate and rent it out, or you can buy Bitcoin and hold it. You just have to have somebody willing to, uh, you know, essentially act as the as the custodial partner or something or send some kind of report once a year or something like that. I think you it has to a, hold your own keys. It has a really high setup cost from what I heard. I mean, as a percentage of, you know, what some small stats, stat, uh, sat stackers might 
might think, you know? Yeah, it wouldn't make sense for small stat stackers. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's just what legal fees generally are. I mean, you're, anything you get a lawyer to do is going to cost you like 1500 2500 basically. Whether mm-hmm. it's like trust or will or setting up a checkbook LLC or a series LLC or whatever it is. So he's kind of in that range of like the minimum that you would, that a lawyer would get paid to do something for you. Yeah, but the, the potential for these programs to let people, you know, avoid the tax that will inevitably come from a large bull run. If, if, if that's what, you know, that's what we're all expecting. Um, that's, that's a huge amount of capital gains that people can avoid in their retirement funds. So I, I, I definitely see the draw there, right? For sure. Absolutely. You know, this is not financial advice, but maybe I'm, I'm a little weird on this here. I'm probably a little bit off base um, because it, I, I don't really, believe in the retirement fund thing anymore like it just seems like it just seems like kind of a joke especially in a world with bitcoin like i would rather be more liquid than try to tie up those funds in something that i'm not going to have access to for a long period of time under the assumption that when i do or when i can access it it will be tax-free i i, I question that that narrative um yeah well I, I will say this i mean if my if my actions follow you know, if my actions indicate it, I haven't put new, newly purchased Bitcoin into an IRA. All I've done is liquidate stocks into Bitcoin inside an IRA that already existed. There you go. So I, I have not done the contribute to a new IRA thing. Um, but I think it does make sense. You know, I mean, it just depends on where you are. Like, yeah, if you're in your 20s and you're just like nibbling at this and don't have a lot of money yet at your disposal, then yeah, it probably doesn't make a ton of sense. But, you know, if you've got your you know, your non-KYC Bitcoin, you know, for if they all come down and stomp on your head and you've got your, you know, your Bitcoin that you just buy through Swan or River or Cash App or whatever, Coinbase, and then you also still have that extra, you know, $5,500 a year or whatever, like, why wouldn't you just max out your tax advantaged account if you want to hold more Bitcoin? Sure. I think that's fair. I I just wonder sometimes, um, if that if that uh, promise is going to come to fruition, you know, by the because I'm only 28, by the time I'm old enough to withdraw, I I think we're going to be looking at a totally different regulatory financial landscape than we are today. I mean, just the, this this can't go on for much longer. This this whatever nonsense that they're doing down at the Fed, it's they're going to have to completely shake things up. Well, I, I saw something really scary on. Uh... I think it was in a telegram group this morning and I was like, Oh shit. It's the first thing that's been like, Oh my God, that is probably how it will play out. And this sucks. I got to ask Ansel about this, but, uh, uh, actually you'll know this, this, this will ring true to you guys too. Um, what the boomers will probably do is, uh, because there's not going to be enough money to fund their social security as they live into their late seventies, eighties over the next 10, 15 years, what they'll probably do is vote in the one last gift they'll give to millennials is a math and the millennials will go along with it because they don't like money. They're going to vote a massive inheritance tax. And then that's what will fund the benefits until the boomers die and they will have eaten. They've stolen all the money and then taken it all one more last time. And they'll sell it like it's eating the rich, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> with with the complicity of the millennials who are actually just paying one more time for their parents. And see, this is why, you know, Colin and I spend so much time talking about this idea of um, monetary socialism, which Breedlove also loves talking about, um, that, that 
you know, the, the millennials that are, are really into this socialism movement right now, uh, they, they're pointing at capitalism and how it's not working for them. And, you know, this is not capitalism. Um, and, you know, more, more of this monetary socialism of, of this centralized body moving around money and allocating capital is, is going to make things worse. But, you know, uh, the, the incentives of the system are that the people that, that can control that system um, want more control. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's just broken incentive mechanism. And that's why, you know, Bitcoin obviously fixes this, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, I think it's why you see the, uh, I don't know how you want to get into this actually take up the rest of the show, but let's just say, regardless of what you think people are actually doing, the incentives certainly exist for the power structure, uh, and the people that, that need to like keep this bubble inflated long enough for them to keep getting money until they die. The incentives exist for them to encourage identity politics and strife between, you know, segments of the lower classes right, and, the the younger, and the younger people. And, and the strife's know, already there. They're just dividing it, right? I mean, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it's all such a joke too, because yes, we do have monetary socialism. Yes, there is right now, especially massive wealth transfer happening. And yes, the asset holders benefit disproportionately to everyone else. Um, and, and things are just going to keep getting worse. Populism's going to keep getting worse. But, um, you know, you, we still live in a society that is free enough um, that you can prosper from the fruit of your own labor. And I, I've seen this happen in my personal life where somebody who just really didn't have a lot of motivation to really be successful in life got handed a huge opportunity essentially inherited a bunch of money from family members. He didn't know existed, you know, on the other side of the world and blew through most of it at a casino. And a few years later, he's in prison for embezzling money out of his business and defrauding his customers because he, you know, completely bankrupted himself. Um, It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to look at this. And, and I, I can, on one side, I can understand why these people are so frustrated, you know, especially the young people. They're trying to build a base for themselves, uh, especially if they're trying to work out if they come from poverty, if their socioeconomic background is disadvantaged. Uh, it's hard to build a base for yourself with a currency that depreciates. But at the same time, I know that some people haven't and some people don't. I think it's... Uh... One of the, I mean, one of the tricks that's played is that, uh, you know, how you operate in a system with a, a currency that's, that's depreciating in an inflationary, inflationary regime, you know, doesn't fit how we're educated. We don't get that financial education. So it's really like, you know, it's the alternative finance people that are, you know, really explain that you just need to own assets that benefit from, you know, Cantillon effect and, you know, easy credit and these things like, this is just classic rich dad, poor dad stuff. You know, the people that were kind of on that train 20, 30 years ago and bought up all the, all the assets as opposed to, you know, trusting that, you know, their financial advisor had their best interests in mind. Um, you know, that's definitely been the way, the way to do it. It's just been basically like one big 40 year uh, long bond trade. That's all it is. That's where Dalio's career was made. It's where Raul 
his career was made. Like if you were just long bonds for the last 40 years, you're good. Um, you know, but now we're at the, the, the zero bound for interest. And so the bonds can't go up anymore. Ponzi's up. It's depressing as hell, man. Let's talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're into geopolitics. I'm in one of the telegram groups. I think it, you started uh, Bitcoin and geopolitics. And I, I was super excited at first and I, I was paying attention a lot, but um, I didn't see a ton of Bitcoin discussion, just a lot of politics. Has that, has that kind of um, evolved more? And is there more of a, a Bitcoin tie-in in, in that group? And have you learned anything really cool that you wanted to? Um, I mean, yeah. So I start a lot of Telegram groups and some of them take off and become useful and important like the Bitcoiners group. And, you know, and some things just end up being better on Twitter. Uh, I think the Bitcoin and geopolitics one uh, has occasional flare-ups that feel useful and feel important. I, I generally use it because I know some of the people that are in there. And that if I ask a question that I wouldn't want to pose publicly on Twitter, because um, people could misinterpret like why I'm asking it, I'll just use it. I'll use it there uh, and ask there because I know somebody will pick it up. And so it's, I just kind of use it as a as a resource. And I think some other people use it that way too. Um, you know, but most of our Bitcoin chatter now just happens, and we have a permanent um, chat room for Swan Signal that has almost a thousand people in it, and that's kind of where a lot of my Bitcoin chatter happens now. Um, so that's, you can join it too. It's t.me slash swan signal. Um, you guys are probably both in it, but if you're not, you should be, um, all guests on swan signal are required to be in it. So you'll be in there next week. (laughs) I actually want to hear about what you were talking about before we started recording about, uh, how you grew up. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean the, the, the short version, feel free to drill in wherever you want is, uh, you know, I was born in 77. My parents met on Haight-Ashbury the year before, um, kind of mixing it up with the spiritual seekers and hippies and stuff like that, kind of the tail end of the hippie movement um, when it was in full swing. And uh, yeah, they uh, basically were in a like a spiritual seeking, you know, spiritual practice, like yoga, meditation, hippie commune sort of thing. So I spent eight years, about half kind of on what was called uh, like a commune or sanctuary or something up in Northern Cali, up in Lake County. And then, you know, another four years off and on in Marin, which is just across the Golden Gate Bridge from SF um, before moving to Seattle when I was eight. And we were still part of the community for another year uh, before uh, joining mainstream society, basically as essentially an immigrant from within the country uh, for fifth grade up in Seattle. So that's always kind of stayed with me and made me kind of like, uh, very observant about how we are as Americans and how the world works because I, you know, not unlike, you know, my wife who came to the U S for college and has been here ever since, you know, she's an immigrant to the U S and, you know, I am too in, in some ways. So I think it's been a, a little bit of a, uh, an advantage in many ways to be able to look at the, the way things work here from a bit of an outsider's perspective. And- Oh, go I, ahead, was, I was going to ask you about, um, speaking of an outside perspective, uh, did you say that uh, the, the currency where your wife uh, was from uh, is also failing right now? Yeah, so the, the Turkish lira wife is from, uh, her family's in Istanbul, although she was mostly raised in, in Jeddah and Saudi when her dad worked there. But um, yeah, the lira's had a, a tough run at it. Um, this has definitely been the most stable period for the lira, uh, you know, in the last 
half century, but still, I think the first year that I went over there was 2010 and it was like 1.8 to the dollar and now it's seven, seven lira to the dollar. Um, and they had a pretty bad crisis where it dropped like, you know, 40, 50% in a couple months, a couple years ago before kind of stabilizing it probably just by, you know, selling off assets to foreign banks or something like that. Like they usually have to, um, we're taking out, you know, shady deal loans and things like that. So, you know, there's just no, it, having a, having a currency as, as we know, as like an instrument of, of government policy that by definition entrenches whoever has the purse strings and has the power, um, at the expense of everybody else. Cause if you can print the money and you can pay for the bread and the circuses, you know, of course it's easier to keep getting voted in. And, you know, we've, we've seen Erdogan, the president there, just like Putin, who he looks up to and tries to emulate, uh, just keep on changing the rules over and over again and keep on extending how long he can be in power for. So I think Putin came in power in what, 2000, 2001. And now he can be president, I think till 2034 um, legally after changing the rules like 10 times. The FDR um, approach. Yeah. And, you know, Erdogan's done similar. You know, he, uh, I think he was uh, prime minister for a long time, which had all the power. And then it was about to lapse and he couldn't be prime minister anymore. And so he pushed through uh, basically a change in the rules that shifted all the power to the presidency so he could be elected president. And then, and now they shifted the rules again. And so now he's basically, I think at least through 2029. And I'm sure if he's still alive and in decent health, he'll extend it further somehow. This is, I, all right. I don't want to, I don't want to go off on another rabbit hole tangent. Cause I'm going to give you a quote an Erdogan quote. I think he said, but, so this was when he was still the mayor of Istanbul um, before he got elected to national office. He said that uh, democracy is a train that you ride until you get to your destination. Yeah. Yep. That, that sounds exactly about right. I've been, I've been recently listening to this four part series that uh, a friend of mine that I had on a few weeks ago, his name is CJ. He runs the dangerous history podcast. He did a four part series analyzing Woodrow Wilson and just what a weird freak that guy was. And he actually believed that the administrators of a democracy were akin to the administrators of the monarchy and how it was the administrator's job to execute the divine will of the sovereign monarch. Um, under a democracy, it's the administrator's job to administer the divine will of the sovereign individuals. However, he believed that the government's job was to shape public opinion um, to, to direct individuals into what they ought to believe so that the bureaucrats can do what they know is best for, uh, for the nation states. And it's funny because he often expressed frustration with how slow moving and difficult to change the United States government was. Um, he says, you know, we can't get anything done. We can't have real progress if we can't really take control. Um, but that was how it was designed. It was designed to try to prevent that type of despotism. It's kind of hilarious, you know, that you see these people uh, coming in and wanting to shake that up when that was its sole intention. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the power, the power of the American system for the most part has been the checks and balances, right? It's been the intransigence. It's been, and, and this, this goes for the two-party system as well. Like as much as we hate that every single issue that can possibly come up is like immediately politicized and turned into like two opposing forces, 
at the very least, it means that you're fighting at the edges of things as opposed to like <laughs> going after the protocol there. Right. And I, I love, I love analogies of, you know, what Bitcoin is and how close it is to the ideals of the enlightenment of, you know, the early writings around the French revolution and certainly what the framers did with the constitution and just like how in line it is with, with human nature, praxeology, you know, and, and some of these things that come out of Austrian economics and classical economics. And, and, you know, in, in my own personal life, Taleb may or may not be popular with all Bitcoiners today, but the philosophy of Bitcoin, and even though he doesn't really get Bitcoin, regardless of having written a, a forward for Safe's book, he clearly didn't read it. Um, I still love Taleb for many of his other ideas, and those ideas spring directly from the classical culture of the Eastern Mediterranean, which I also have like a really cool daily window into because of the, the hereditary information passed through to my wife from, you know, mother to mother, grandma to grandma, like all the way down the line. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've got some, some Lebanese in my extended family and safe as, you know, Palestinian Lebanese and Taleb is Lebanese. And like over and over again, you find that these sort of uh, classical ideas spring from that region. Um, and, you know, where culture has been the longest. And in a lot of ways, the enlightenment was actually just the Western discovery of a lot of concepts and science and, and things that were kind of lost in the dark ages. And it was just kind of reconnecting through, you know, Istanbul in many ways. And then, you know, then through Constantinople and then, you know, the, the Ottomans coming and capturing that and then that forcing them to find a way around the, the major connecting hub through the Silk Road and having to go elsewhere uh, instead of going through the Ottomans because they couldn't anymore. And that's what started the, you know, creating you know, bigger ships and, you know, trying to find a, a passage <laughs> around Africa. And then, you know, all that age of exploration in the Enlightenment was all basically just kicked off by uh, essentially shutting off access to that region and having to go around it. So I don't know, I, I'm just like super getting into to looking at history in with through a Bitcoin lens. So that's like, that's like another good idea. Like, why doesn't somebody start a, you know, history and Bitcoin show? Like that should be a show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we try to touch on that here every now and then. Cause it's, it's so yeah. applicable. I mean, and I called speaking of Taleb, I called the American constitutional Republic anti-fragile the other day on Twitter. And mm -hmm. I had a few people come at me that were like, Oh, you think this is anti-fragile? Like you're out of your mind. I'm like, I still have my guns. Don't I? <laughs> I mean, we've been around 300 years and I'm still allowed to walk down to the store two blocks from my house and, and buy as much guns and ammunition as I want. That's pretty anti-fragile if you ask me. Mm-hmm. But Jefferson was uh, inspired by, you know, like a lot of those Enlightenment thinkers. I mean, he was a big proponent of Francis Bacon, I believe. Um, I think he was, um, I, I think Voltaire was alive around the same time he was as well. And I think that, I'm not sure if they were in communications or not. I can't remember. Um, but so many of the same ideas like around framing uh, early American history to me is, is fascinating because they had, it seems like they had the formula right, but things went wrong so quickly and they, they could never get quite back on course. And here we are today. And yet it, and yet it persists. Right. You know, and, it is, and, and it's, it's open enough that we can progress with technological innovations and societal innovations that can, you know, 
that can get us back toward the natural state of things. Like if anything, I think what Bitcoin has the opportunity to do is to bring us much more in line with what human nature really is. So I've been kind of hammering on this point that like so many things, like if you're Gen X like me in like early forties, there've been like two or three sides to so many issues that you could reasonably as an intelligent person have been schooled or cultured or accultured in such a way that you would have, you know, you'd be on firm, firm footing to believe what you believe. And the reality of Bitcoin and as it permeates and kind of like spreads through the culture, it ends so many of these sort of sociological and economic arguments in favor of the facts on the ground, which is that it's just going to kind of reshape things, you know, to fit hard money, low time preference, uh, individual rights, privacy, like all these different things are just going to kind of, those arguments are going to get settled and we're not going to be talking about those things anymore. Just like we don't talk about, you know, flat earth versus round earth anymore. Well, unless you're on NBA Twitter. Well, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, um, oh, I was going to ask you, you said we're getting back to human nature. Well, what exactly is human nature? I mean, this is just like, you know, human action Mises type stuff. I'm, uh, I'm listening again right now to uh, Mises Reader, uh, which is kind of fun. So it's kind of in my ear and at, at nights right now. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just, you know, thinking from first principles about what actions we would take and, and trying to uh, do things that are more in line with, with freedom and, you know, just being like uh, independent individuals and responsible individuals. And, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a very sort of, libertarianism today was basically just liberal in the 1780s you know it was like laissez-faire liberal thought is very close to what we today think of as libertarian right and nowadays what we think of as liberal is the pretty much the polar opposite funny how they do that yeah but also like left and right are just so closely aligned on money printing now ever since you know fiscally conservative you know, basically went out the window in the, in the early 2000s when they reinflated the dot-com bubble instead of letting it play out. So, you know, it's just been spiraling out of control ever since. We had what? a balanced budget in the 90s under a Democratic president. And right. W just couldn't handle a recession. He just didn't want to not get elected in 2004. And when that's the thing, too, you said that um, so many of these people come from all these different bases of knowledge um, with these different perspectives that... Um, in their own light very well might be true. And I I think our system is kind of an example of that. And we were talking about this with Jeff Booth the other day where he was saying that he, he shares his book, the price of tomorrow with people who are trained, you know, Keynesians, they worked in finance their whole life and they have a Keynesian lens for everything. And they read his book and they say, Jeff, I'm afraid everything I believe might be wrong. Right. But it hasn't been wrong for them through their paradigm up until now. Um, It's worked worked I'm, I'm doing air quotes you guys can't mm-hmm. see it but it's worked up until now yes it's had uh, severe trade-offs but you know if you don't know anything else it, it it's worked just fine right for for your intents and purposes depending on where you fall in the yeah. pecking order and shoot my my former roommate post b school is in his 16th or 17th year uh in the same group at goldman sachs He's done just fine under this Keynesian regime with cantillionaires all over the place. 
you know? So like what, what's the incentive of somebody that's, you know, basically got enough money to retire on to like really care that much about the way it, like it, reality is going to have to smack people in the face by the system imploding and, and the things that they believe, um, you know, essentially being shown to be false for most people. There's very few that are going to, you know, pay attention. Even if they listen to Jeff, it's going to be in a cacophony of other things that they listen to. And, you know, unless they're personal friends without facts on the ground changing, it's going to be very hard to break through. Um, so I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll see more people. I mean, I, I, we, we see it, right? And I think a lot of people will be drawn in by, by a big price spike and hopefully they'll, you know, find your show and find, you know, Parker Lewis's blog and find the writings of Breedlove and pick up the Bitcoin standard. And like, we'll definitely orange pill some percentage of these people that get drawn in by the price move. But as long as this, uh, you know, fiat fueled, uh, you know, U.S. dollar and U.S. military backed regime of at least for people in the U.S. Uh, benefiting from the Cantillon effect, which all 330 million of us benefit from, but people at the top benefit more than others. But we all benefit from having cheap consumer credit and government programs essentially funded by us stealing the wealth of people from around the world and funneling it into dollars. You know, so until that system actually starts to show real cracks it'll be very difficult to get Americans, people in the United States to acknowledge and really understand how messed up the system is. Yeah. I was actually talking with Colin about that the other day that, you know, labor is cheaper in China and what, why is, is the real value of that labor cheaper or, or somewhere else around the world. And, and you're seeing geographic arbitrage where people are outsourcing everything. And, you know, the, the U S only exports dollars at this point and they import all their goods. So it, it was kind of fascinating because we, we kind of asked ourselves that question and didn't really have a great answer. Although it, it, it has a lot to do with what you're talking about, where we've been kind of stealing from, from the rest of the world and, you know, it's no surprise that when Britain had the reserve currency that <clears throat> that they were a superpower and now we have the reserve currency and we're a superpower. And uh, I know I just thought that was I was wondering if you, you kind of wanted to comment on that, the fact that labor is cheaper other places and that the cost of living is cheaper other places. And, and theoretically, we're exporting our inflation, too. So it's kind of counter uh, counterintuitive. Uh I mean, I don't know. I guess I just look at like immigration flows will tell you everything you need to know about who's getting the better deal. It's true. Right. And some of this we did create, like some of this is just, you know, we've been granted uh, a really nice situation without having to defend our borders because we got oceans on both sides. And, you know, this is all kind of like Stratford, Peter Zion stuff, but you know, we have, we have 13,000 miles of navigable rivers that connect to farmland. That's the breadbasket in the middle of the U.S. that empties out into the Gulf through New Orleans. 13,000 miles. The rest of the world combined has 12,000 miles. Wow. So we were granted basically like the best geopolitical situation or location and, you know, the mountains that you can hide your, you know, your nuclear command center in and you know the coasts and all these inlets even the barrier islands on the east coast that basically create a port and like a safe harbor for you know 15 important different potential port cities up and down the east coast 
you know, over and over again, everywhere you look, there's just these geographic advantages that explain so clearly why the U.S. will always be a dominant economic power and probably, you know, for as long as it's reasonable to even think about it, Bitcoin or not, U.S. dollar or not, like this will be the number one economy and military power in the world for hundreds of years. Interesting. So I, I'm like not, you know, you know, another thing that you just made me think of kind of is like, you know, as much as, uh, you know, some of these trade agreements, NAFTA, WTO in particular, kind of accelerated, have uh, have hurt the middle class and kind of exported jobs. Uh, Bitcoin turning into a global medium of exchange and unit of account could actually accelerate some really rough disruption, especially when you put it on top of, um, you can just like pay for goods and services with Lightning anywhere in the world really easily uh, on top of being able to do all sort of like uh, digital information work just over zoom and the internet. Um, 3d printing a lot of, a lot of white collar jobs don't need to be in the U S like if you, if you can work remotely, somebody just put this on Twitter or an article like a month ago, but like if it was easy enough to let, you know, Jenny keep working remotely from Chicago instead of coming to New York every week, why can't that just be in the Philippines? So I think we're going to see an insane level of job outsourcing and just job removal over the next couple of years based on what companies have learned from, uh, from this, this lockdown. And I think we're learning that companies can be super efficient with way fewer people and without them being in the U S that's the thing, right? Because what what Ben was saying, um, we we've seen so much of this outsourcing of labor, and but the question is really why, right? And the answer is is should be obvious. It's not obvious to a lot of people who don't look at this from first principles. It's because our labor markets can't compete on the international playing field. It's because of things like minimum wage and uh, affirmative action and uh, right to work and labor unions and the 40 hour work week and uh, medical benefits and retirement pensions and all these things that go on and on and on that, that really make our society, you know, a great place to live. Um, they, they affect, you know, the, the more the barriers get broken down for the labor markets, the more that's going to make the U S less competitive on the international labor market pool of competition. And this is what I didn't understand. Um, you know, growing up, I, I, or even just as I was younger, um, I, I probably would have called myself a, a patriot. I would have called myself an, a nationalist. You know, now I would have called it statism, but it was because in my mind, right, the American way of life represented um, liberalism. And it was because I hadn't studied those things carefully enough. It really wasn't until I read In the Fed by Ron Paul, and Ron Paul sent me down the rabbit hole of classical liberalism and uh, Austrian economics that I understood the nuance, the differences, right? That, um, that government mandated labor regulations impacts your ability to get a job in, in an increasingly globalized trade. And that could even happen. It doesn't even have to be global. It could, you could have two neighbor nations and one has most of the wealth and it starts to enact all types of labor regulations to give their people a better way of life and jobs start going to the other country. If they have free trade relationships, that's just the natural way things go because profits are going to um, be sought out by the entrepreneurs where there is the least amount of overhead. It's just natural business. 
So I will, I will say this. So, uh, as you say, there may be some overregulation in the United States. There's absolutely unfair underregulation in some competing economies. There's slave labor, there's horrible working conditions that, you know, basically like put people to their demise much earlier than they should. Um, there's environmental regulations that just don't exist that just poison all the people in the neighborhood, that kind of shit. Like there's a lot of horrible stuff that goes on. Um, so this idea that you would have, uh, you know, Oh, absolutely free of regulation. If you try to do that, all you're going to do is you're going to get a bunch of people to come and like chop everybody's heads off and have a revolution. So going, going to, you know, some idealized form of like total, lack of regulation in a light in, in a world where we are human and we are, you know, social creatures and, you know, we do things often for the benefit of the herd rather than for our individual selves. And that's just how we evolved. We evolved that way for a reason because, you know, those, those traits exist as, as uh, Matt Ridley would write in the red queen, you know, those traits exist because they help us reproduce you're never going to see this idealized version of liberal capitalism, just like communists will never see their dreamed of perfection <laughs> in communism. All you're going to get is like tugs in one direction of the other. And I think right now what we're seeing is, you know, we have strayed since world war II. you know, really since, since the great depression, like we've been on this train. And as you said, like maybe even since, you know, 1913 creation of the Fed, stupid things from Woodrow Wilson and, and people that came after that. It's been like this kind of hundred year aberration that got way worse in the Great Depression and then, you know, just had the nail in the coffin in 1971 um, where we're just pulled way too far towards statism and way too far towards socialism for, for how things ought to be. But it doesn't mean that an extreme uh, where there's absolutely no social safety net and no regulations will ever exist. It cannot exist because we are human and that is against human nature as well. I, yeah. You make really good points there. Um, because I would pose the question, you know, do these right is, is the problem lack of regulation in those, in those nation states where there's a lot of oppression or is it the, the natural power dynamics of wealth disparities, right? Of wealth inequalities of people, um, not having enough sovereignty of not being able to make themselves dangerous, uh, dangerous enough to not be exploited. And really, the honest answer is regulation exists to try to smooth out those disparities to prevent populist uprisings. I mean, and, and this is the hardest problem in my mind in, in terms of um, trying to imagine what an idealistic anarcho-capitalist world would look like, the, the defense problem. Uh, how do you make the individual dangerous enough that they can't be exploited by those that have? It's almost an unsolvable problem. Uh, Rothbard wrote about it a lot, uh, but you saw a, a lot of problems with this in, in early America. It was pretty much how we ended up with the military industrial complex was because they had to solve these problems at, at the highest level um, because the, the decentralized collective had a lot of trouble uh, coming together and, and solving that problem because of the nature of human incentives and because of these power dynamics that tend to happen naturally or, you know, just by um, people exploiting one another when they have the ability to do so to gain the upper hand. Agree. Yeah, it's a, 
it's a deep rabbit hole thinking mm-hmm. about, well, this is, this is interesting too, right? So a lot of, a lot of conversations I've had with Bitcoiners more recently is like, okay, you know, we, we won the arguments over, you know, big blockers in 2017. And like, yes, there's still like some annoying, you know, ear flicks and, you know, toe pulls and shit from Hoskinson and Vitalik and B cashers or whatever. But like, for the most part, you can kind of like, Snoop Dogg style, like scratch them off your balls with your paws. Like you don't have to fucking talk to them anymore. Right. Um, and we're trying to turn our attention toward, you know, what will be a future with Bitcoin in it and what are some of the problems that we're going to face and what are some of the opportunities and what is some of the intellectual groundwork that we should be laying and what are some of the connections and networking that we should be doing now to try to, you know, try to make the fourth quadrant, the unknown unknowns of a Bitcoinized future, like as small as possible. There's always going to be some shit that we don't forecast, but let's think about all the things that may come and let's do some scenario planning and let's be thinking about this shit. And, you know, this is why we titled that podcast, you know, ugly duckling in the bright orange future. It's like, that was really, you know, ugly duckling is obviously like the swan and you know, whatever, but it's also kind of a euphemism for, for Bitcoin because Bitcoin in its early days is a bit of an ugly duckling. And we think it's going to bring about this, this future where it's this beautiful swan instead of this sort of nascent technology that's banging around on silk roads and dark nets and shit like that. And now everybody's going to have it. We're all going to pay for shit in Bitcoin all over the world. It's going to be this, the biggest economic playing field ever. It's going to unlock the kind of like low time preference, you know, high bar for giving your capital to somebody else to use it productively. That's going to, you know, basically force good investment instead of malinvestment. We're going to go to Mars. We're going to drive all these cars. We're going to use real estate more effectively. Like all these things are going to be great. Um, But what's going to be bad. There's going to be a flip side to so many of these things. You know, there's going to be a shitty lining to, for every silver lining and who's going to be displaced and, and what are you going to do about those? Because if you don't pay attention to the problems that we create with a Bitcoinized future, then people are going to rebel. They're going to try to redistribute your Bitcoin. They're going to try to take your Bitcoin. They're going to try to vo- vote you out. They're going to try to like change your borders. They're going to try to attack you. So if you don't pay attention to the human condition and recognize that like, six billion people are never going to get their 272,000 sats. What are they going to do? It's funny. The answer to that question is actually really similar to what Jeff Booth left us with at the end of the pod. We just had him on um, that. He said that, that we need to be thinking about the transition to that Bitcoinized future and what that looks like and, and how can we, ameliorate that and make it as good as possible for as many people as possible. But um, yeah, I a hundred percent agree with you posing that question to, to all of us. And I hope we can all continue to have that conversation and, and, and try to help as many people as possible. Yeah. And, and try to get people to understand like, you know, the, the base level solution should always be, you know, set up the game board, right set up the protocol, right? So that humans can take, you know, individual free action. Um, you know, and I think that's, that's the way to go and, and try to make sure that that protocol isn't bastardized, you know, like try to make sure that, uh, you know, despotic countries can't just funnel all internet traffic through two pipes and shut them down whenever they want. So that they're like Turkey can just shut down every Western internet service with a flick of a switch whenever they want. And they did it during the attempted coup a couple of years ago. 
right? And China is proving, you know, they're very capable of doing that. And, you know, we just got this guy yesterday or the day before that was, uh, he has a Chinese wife and he was on video chat with her and, uh, you know, on a service that everybody uses in China and it turned his stream off because he had a Western face, mm. you know? So like, it's, uh, it's going to be a battle to keep our internet services and Bitcoin out of the hands of despots here in the United States as well, because they're not going to like that their hyperinflating US dollar is not worth as much as our sats. And they're going to try to vote it away from us. Yeah, I would say anybody who's a Bitcoiner today, right, and has even even now that we're staring at a $9,200 Bitcoin versus the pennies you could pick it up for years ago. Um, any Bitcoiner, even even still today, that's just beginning to accumulate, better be ready in the future to either work, be actively working to solve problems because there's going to be a lot of problems or you better be ready to be pretty altruistic because there's going to be a lot of ire uh, directed towards the haves. And, you know, if your OPSEC's really good, <laughs> maybe maybe you'll be able to skate through that. Maybe you'll be able to slip through the cracks, but um, it, it's not going to so, be pretty. You know, if, if we're uh, right about the way the world is going, and I really think we are. Yeah. Uh, so I'll give you an example, and this is kind of like um, – where I love tension in the system. And so consider Bitcoin and the Bitcoin social layer, like a, a complex system, similar to the government we were in, in the U S and we were talking about, you know, checks and balances or the two party system or whatever. So yes, I run Swan and Swan sells Bitcoin and we're, we're trying to bring, you know, 10 million new people into Bitcoin so that we can, you know, have vociferous people in every congressional district that will go to bat for Bitcoin and, you know, make it difficult for, Brad Sherman or anybody else to, you know, be against Bitcoin. Um, so that's kind of our goal. Uh, I'm also personally like incredibly supportive and will lend a strategic ear and brain anytime to anyone that is doing anything related to Bitcoin privacy or non KYC Bitcoin. I can't do that for what we're trying to do. Cause our goal is to basically like head off at the pass any, you know, future, attempts at government intervention, but there's a chance that we fail. And if that is the case, then you're going to need blockstream Apparently that's a Dogecoin on uh, TikTok right now. KYC I'm hoping that overturned Windows fifths as well. <laughs> you know, way more nodes. I run a node, but like we need, you know, millions of people running nodes. Like that whole infrastructure of, of Bitcoin outside the system needs to be robust enough and it needs to be like enough of those Bitcoiners. So if there's 10 million people that own some Bitcoin and care about Bitcoin, like we do need like 500,000 of them to be like hardcore, ready to go with the backpack and the satellite, you know, and ready to relocate and like keep running this thing, like in case we fail, you know? So I'm, I'm very supportive of, of anybody building that, that second insurance policy, um, you know, alongside or, you know, separately from what we're doing. And I totally understand people that criticize us for trying to sell KYC Bitcoin, but, you know, I think they're two fronts of the same war. Do you think that the Bitcoiners of today, like the ones that are building media personalities or themselves, um, what do you think the future holds for them? I mean, like the, these public personas, right. That are Bitcoiners today that are the, the sound money advocates, the, Hey, this, this train is coming and you're either going to have to, 
get jump on board or get run over. Um, what, what do you think, you know, what's going to be their role in the future? Are they going to be like the next Jim Cramers or are they going to be like the, the next politicians or are they going to fade into obscurity? You know, I, I often wonder about this. How's the world going to see us in, in 10 or 20 years? I heard that too. I um, know. I think it'll be much more like the people that are known for promoting like a particular asset class and like ways to ways to work in and around a particular asset class. My so, taxi driver. you know, I think, you know, pomp is well on his way to becoming like, you know, what Kiyosaki was for real estate, something like that, you know, and he'll kind of be that for Bitcoin and McDLT technology or whatever the fuck else they push at Morgan Creek. And, uh, you know, I think that'll be fine. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the market decides who they want to hear from and what they want to hear from them about, you know, otherwise you just, you rise or fall in accordance with, with your skill as a, as a media personality and the effort that you put in and, you know, and how you market yourself and the tools that you use. Um, I do think that, you know, everyone that's in the space is going to have like a larger audience in the future. So, you know, when you, when you find a YouTuber that puts up an occasional Bitcoin video, you know, usually their Bitcoin video does like one tenth the views that their other videos do. That won't be the case soon. And then I think after this cycle, it won't be the case for the, for the future. I think their Bitcoin videos will, in 2025, will do the same as their other videos. If you're doing an unboxing video and then you do a Bitcoin video, they're going to have the same number of views. <laughs> if you do a TikTok dance and then you say something interesting about Bitcoin, you know, in 2025, they'll have the same number of views, whereas today it's like one tenth. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I think it's just because uh, Robinhood made it available in Robinhood. Isn't that where the whole Dogecoin thing is? There's plenty of bag holders that have incentive to pump there too, like getting on that train. Like, hey, yeah, guys, Dogecoin will make you rich. You know what's yeah. hilarious to me about that, though, is that Jackson Palmer has come out and said, I wish people would stop buying this thing because it was just a joke. Yeah, yeah it's pretty funny. You know, it's funny though. It's like, it's getting a lot of news and we think like, oh my God, there goes another crypto popping pump yeah, and dump style. Really fair. It's like, it's pumped way less than Hertz did a couple months ago, <laughs> you know, which was the same crew, just pumping, pumping stocks. There was one, one last night went up a hundred percent SPAQ or something. It's like a special purpose acquisition company i think it's trying to take uh fisker public because tesla mooned and evidently fisker never went completely out of business even though it's trash uh you know hey another electric car company is going to go public let's just bid up the spec that's going to buy it like it doesn't even, i don't even think it owns it yet it's just public and has said that they're going to take fisker public by buying it and everybody bid up that spec that has a listing that was the thing i learned when i was trading otc is that rumors of rumors can move markets like like you wouldn't believe i mean it, it's actually it's actually insane how much our it's, it's, the the modern investor trades on emotion maybe not even his emotion but on the emotions of others their emotional expectations well let's try it so i, I heard from a friend of a yeah, friend that, that uh, bitcoin, bitcoin all-time high is coming before right? july 31st it's, it's that you know, it, it kind of goes too. back That's to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, where there's smoke, there's fire. Get this narrative out. I, I heard my barber it, talking about Right, that. and get it honest, like you're saying. Yeah. And I think as long as that message yeah. is nice. is uh, is pure, 
then um oh no wait no he was telling me thing, to buy real estate right? never mind <laughs> yeah so i mean, listen i want to i want to just kind of hit this like uh bitcoin right. media thing because um right you know listen i think that these these people that are willing to put in the work and talk about bitcoin in public like if their message about bitcoin is accurate I don't, I don't really care that much. And, and as long as they're not like disingenuously, like falsely advertising other things, I don't actually care that much about their other <laughs> business activities. Like I really Love don't, it. like I never, That's great. you know, I don't hear like Tom Lee only talks about Bitcoin on CNBC. And, you know, if he goes and talks about like a shit coin, you should rail him for it. And that's fine. Uh, you know, I, if, if Morgan Creek wants to invest in some blockchain companies or whatever, cause they have good founders and blockchain helps them market their equity or whatever. Like they're not soaking retail with that. It's a, it's within sec rules and it's just another startup. Like it's not really for us to judge. And he's doing a better job. Like by the month, his Bitcoin pitches on these media appearances gets better and better and better. And, you know, I think he, he sounded like any, any Bitcoin podcast host that I would laud when he was on, I mean, didn't get everything right on the, um, the Bill Burr thing, but like he did a good job. Um, as good as somebody can be expected in real time, whatever. Um, and when you look at him and, uh, and McCormick, like just the fucking work that they put in the volume that they're putting in, especially with Peter going around the world, just like a fucking madman year round with all the appearances and all the filming and trying to make movies and all these different things. Like at some point you just got to respect the effort and, uh, and, like the quality of the quality and the quantity of the output of those two guys in particular, it's like, don't begrudge them their success unless you're willing to put in the same amount of time. Yeah. Peter and pump, they know, um, they know how to play the game. That's for sure. Yeah. And it's, and it's not a hobby for them, right? Like, you know, I, I have a full-time gig and I put in all my effort into Swan Bitcoin and like we have a couple shows and those are ancillary, but it's not where our bread is buttered. And most Bitcoin podcasters have a full-time gig, you know, like Brady works with us and Stefan has his podcast, but you know, he's got ministry of nodes and had a long career in accounting before that. And Marty is working full-time at Great American Mining and has his show. And, you know, so it's like, there are other things that some of these people are doing. Like Peter's whole business is his media business and you know, I think it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, he should be judged on how well, how well he's doing building his business <laughs> as long as he's doing, you know, as long as he's net positive and honest and honest about, you know, Bitcoin to the best of his ability. Yeah. It was funny. Like, you know, the whole, uh, does Bitcoin need marketing? Like Bitcoin has marketing, whether you think it needs it or not again, it doesn't fucking matter. It has it because it has a bunch of podcasts and a bunch of authors and a bunch of company founders with marketing departments that are marketing Bitcoin constantly. And it's only going to get noisier and there's only going to be more people marketing Bitcoin all the time. And everybody that posts something positive about Bitcoin on Twitter or something negative, it's still marketing for Bitcoin. Peter Schiff is on the team. Muriel's on the team. Like, <laughs> Hoskinson's on the team. You know, like everybody's marketing Bitcoin all the time. Um, whether you like it or not, it just doesn't have obviously like a centralized marketing department, but there are a lot of centralized marketing departments whose sole function is to market Bitcoin. 
like the whole, you know, Square Cash app, Bitcoin marketing team and our marketing team, like it's our job. It's literally our job to market Bitcoin. Not because, like, because we have the incentive to do so. Because we benefit from marketing Bitcoin. <laughs> so it's going to exist and it's only going to get noisier. And, you know, I think, uh, I think the, best, the best that you can do is not fight against the marketing of Bitcoin, but fight against false advertising fight against getting plebs wrecked. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think at some point, Mr. Hoddle on Twitter had taken like 12 hours off from the argument and he came you, back and he was like, what the fuck was this? All I was saying is I didn't want people to, you know, do false advertising. Obviously there's fucking marketing. Just don't do false advertising, you know? And that's kind of where I am. Like, don't lie about what Bitcoin can do for you. Like just be, just be honest, even though it's not regulated as a security, like you should basically have the same, approach to talking about Bitcoin that you would if you were like a licensed and registered securities broker. Like you should say like, you know, this is not investment advice. This is what I think may happen. Always couch it in like never more than you can afford, like take a nibble at it. Don't invest more than you are comfortable with. Always invest in things you understand. That's why education is important, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, just trying to encourage people to talk about Bitcoin in those ways and not end up with people, you know, talking about Bitcoin, like Tika Tiwari talks about five coins to 5 million or, you know, don't do James Altucher Bitcoin banner ads or whatever the fuck happened in 2017. You know, just try to be honest about what Bitcoin is. And I think we can all be on on the same team talking about Bitcoin. Sure. And I think, you know, it, it, we have to acknowledge too that like Twitter is just sort of a weird microcosm of uh, hyper hyperbole, intentional hyperbole. Um and, and I do think there's a place for it too. And I, I do think there's a place for the toxicity. And I don't necessarily mean that like, oh, jump on anybody's back who doesn't already get it. Um, but I do think it, it's kind of a meme. You know, it's, it's kind of just, oh yeah, the Bitcoin toxic thing. Yeah, it's a meme. Those, those maximalists, what a pain in the ass those guys are. But I mean, when I look at like what Ben and I are doing, like our approach is much different than that because we know that, that isn't effective. I mean, look at, like, you, look at the JK Rowling too. Awesome. Like you had a, a million and one people in their parents' basement immediately bombarding JK Rowling with a million things about Bitcoin. It's like, you need, to, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this because Bitcoin is the best and it's the only thing that matters. Um, that approach doesn't work. Shoving information down people's throats doesn't work and tribalism doesn't really attract a whole lot of other people to your idea. Um, but it's, it's fun. You know, I mean, it's, it's entertaining. It, it gives you something to do during the bear markets, but like what Ben and I do is, is totally different. I mean, it's like, you know, we're, we're trying to lead people through the first principles, um, and never even really offer them the solution. Just kind of have like some stuff on the shelf over here. And you're like, Hey, you know, you just saw all that. Why don't you check this out too? And Oh, by the way, yeah, that Bitcoin thing, that's, that's a pretty big deal. That might solve a lot of these problems. Huh? I mean, I call it shilling them softly and I'm so proud of myself for that because I keep repeating it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's uh, talking about principles that underpin Bitcoin and that would naturally lead to Bitcoin is one of the best ways to go. I think that's why you find, you know, whether it's our book that we are almost done writing for that we've been giving away chapter by chapter for give Bitcoin obviously starts with like, what is money? Safe's book starts that way. I think your whole, you know, WTF happened in 1971. That's basically like a, what is money really kind of website, right? And what are the effects of bad money? Um, so I think that's, that's clearly one of the best ways to start to red pill people or orange pill people. 
Um, so kudos to uh, shilling them softly. It's definitely a good move. Corey, we enjoyed this conversation. This was great. Tell us, where can the listeners keep up with you if they want to get in touch with you or just keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Twitter, Swan Bitcoin is a good place to start. Swanbitcoin.com, obviously, ready to get started on your uh, stacking plan. I should show exactly what it is real quick at the very end, but uh, uh, automatic pull from your bank account, automatic purchase of Bitcoin, free automatic withdrawal to self-custody, which we highly recommend and and teach noobs about, but it's not required. You can also custody it with us for free and we use the same custodian as Binance and Bittrex and a bunch of the other guys. It's like a prime trust and fireblocks on the back end if if your grandma needs to custody with us. Um, But yeah, that's that's swanbitcoin.com. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, our our shows are at youtube.com slash swansignals, so come check us out there. All right. Well, uh, we'll definitely listen to uh, to Ben on uh, on Swan Signal Live, which will be uh, airing next week. Um, so you can just look it up and, and find him on our show. And uh, and Colin, we'll have to get you on uh, soon too. Maybe we'll have you on Ugly Duckling, and we'll talk some music and Bitcoin since you like to show them softly. One hundred percent. Okay, sounds good. Well, thank you guys. Really, really appreciate the opportunity to connect with you guys and and Ben to to spend some time with you for the first time, I think. So it was awesome. All right. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed the talk with Corey. Don't forget, you guys can find all of our episodes at BitcoinEchoChamber.com, as well as you can find all the hyperlinks and the show notes at the website if you're listening on Spotify or iTunes. Speaking of which, you can find us on pretty much any of your favorite podcast catchers. Obviously, iTunes and Spotify, as well as Podbean, Google Podcasts, there's a whole bunch of them. There's a list of them on the website if you want to see which all are available, as well as an RSS feed on the website. I just recently added a link up at the top if RSS is something that you like to use. If you guys have been enjoying the show, please give me some stars, thumbs up, subscribes, comments on whatever platform you're listening to. Helps me grow the audience, helps us get better guests on, helps us keep providing interesting content for you to listen to. And if you want to reach out to us, you can send us an email at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com, or you can hit up Ben or I on Twitter. I'm at HeavilyArmedC, and Ben is at MrCoolBP. We're really active on Twitter, and our DMs are always open. So if you just want to chat about anything, or if you want to talk about the show, please hit us up. We love talking to you guys. That's about all I got. Don't forget to check out River. Use our promo link, river.com BEC, and you'll get your first week of trades at zero fee. Pretty cool deal if you want to check it out. And I've still been cranking out the newsletters every day, so if you guys want to check out the newsletters, just go to WTF1971.com and give those a look through. Thanks so much for listening. Always appreciate you guys and your continued support, and I will see you in the next one.